Only surreal politics video chat. Good to be with all of you today. Um, I have uh, there's a lot going on in the news, as I mentioned in the show notes before I got started here. The news it's packed with uh, with interesting stuff today. Another Trump indictment is coming down the pike. You know what could possibly go wrong with that? Um, a gay Democrat testifying before Congress today in a Hunter Biden probe, which tells you that he's obviously not lying because why would a gay Democrat lie about a Democrat, right? Um, and of course, during this testimony, I thought it was very amusing that there emerged like this competition. I didn't, I didn't actually listen to it. I had it on in the background while I was preparing for the show, but I just, I, I was an interesting visual that I saw two different people in the, in the, uh, audience there or in the, whatever was behind the, uh, speakers wearing Ashley Babbitt t-shirts. And then I saw this woman come down, sit down in front of one of them and, she was very conspicuously trying to sit in front of him. Like that was her purpose. Her her purpose was to block the camera from seeing the Ashley Babbitt shirt. And then she like looked at the guy next to her and like smiled and like made this face. It was very conspicuous what she had done. And then I looked away and like I looked a little while later and then there was a woman sitting in front of her with an Ashley Babbitt shirt on. And I was like, oh, this is pretty funny. And I'm happy to speak with you about uh, those things or whatever else is on your mind, of course. But I, I, I view this as largely repetitive, right? I mean, another Donald Trump indictment. I mean, how many times are you going to send the president to prison, you know? And so, you know, to start off, I, I thought I'd rather say and talk about the concept of success a little bit and the pursuit of it. And on Monday's show, the public show, I made mention of this and I referred the listener to names like Brian Tracy and Tony Robbins and John Maxwell. And I should myself revisit these authors and producers, then come back to this subject in the near future. But that necessity is no obstacle to what I mean to convey today. Do that. Success, it might at first glance appear, is largely theoretical to your humble correspondent. I do not boast of you know money, wealth, or power. Um, if I did, I would quickly be mocked with greater justification than usual. I can, however, claim to have uh, prevailed against substantial obstacles and accomplished things few would think conceivable. I won't list them as I don't mean to brag, but we are, of course, having this conversation, and that is something that more powerful people than I would surely have liked to have prevented. Let me just 
Check Odyssey real quick. Make sure with an Ashley Babbage journal. Okay, yes, everything's working fine on Odyssey. That is very good. Okay, and so, um, okay, Money Penny's fine now. That's very good. And so, back to my what I was getting at here. And so, uh, you know, I consider our challenges in some sense a very fortunate gift. Resistance is the stuff of greatness. An athlete does not become an athlete by doing easy things. He powers against the forces of gravity and inertia, and in many cases, other human beings to increase his capacities. If he happens to be born with certain qualities and tries hard enough, then he attains a certain status in his sport of choice. A student who excels tends to take on more challenging classes, often at the direction of his educators through honors uh, or advanced placement programs. In his youth, he might even skip a grade or two. Challenges force us to try harder, and trying helps us to increase our capacities. Contrast this with our opponents, who are and have been for a very long time very powerful. They have limitless financial resources functionally and are shielded from criticism. The people who are in their social orbit are largely dependent upon them financially and are consequently disinclined to offer criticism for fear of upsetting a petulant mental child who would revoke their sustenance if he gave them offense. In no shortage of instances, these gifts were inherited for no greater effort than the stress of being born, and they consequently have no memory of struggle, much less recent experience. They are largely, uh, they are deprived of nothing, I should say, and obtain no perspective from scarcity. To them, the most pressing concerns in our society are people saying things on social media they disagree with, and those problems are largely solved to their satisfaction through expenditure of funds they have not earned. If they know anything of physical exertion, they have had to pay to pursue it in a gym, likely with the help of a personal trainer, and this is a form of recreation for them rather than any pressing need. They marry, divorce, remarry, commit adultery, and in the midst of all this, likely still find themselves addicted to pornography in no shortage of instances. For those that do drugs, they meet no financial limits on their abuse, and they may spiral into depths of depravity that make the junkie nodding out in the park look fortunate by comparison. This state of affairs is unsustainable for the privileged party, and please don't accuse me of libertarianism, but there is a market element to this phenomenon. Imagine, if you will, the, you know, the fictional libertarian pure free market in which merit is the only means of obtaining money and the power it tends to bestow. One succeeds or fails by his capacity to meet the needs of others, which typically involves the capacity to solve problems or to innovate new and better and less expensive means of producing goods and providing services. Necessity being the mother of all invention, there ensues something of a cycle in which the scrappy underdog struggles to find his way and does so at his competitor's expense because his competitor has gotten too comfortable in his position. Except insofar as they seek novelty for entertainment, comfortable people tend to be averse to change. Why disrupt a good thing, after all? The scrappy underdog, by contrast, requires change. He seeks to disrupt the established order which has endowed his competitor with the comforts he enjoys so that he may enjoy those comforts. As the comfortable actor fends off competition, he expends his resources. This, after some time, becomes all he knows how to do. He has not had to innovate or struggle, only spend, and this has become a reliable means of solving problems for him, so he repeats the behavior, expecting the same result. The scrappy underdog lacks this luxury. He is at all times vigilant as a result in taking greater notice of what is happening at all times. He tries and fails, gains an inch, loses two, reassesses strategy, tries something else, 
and fights for everything he has in much the same manner that an athlete attempts to prevail against gravity and inertia. He learns the whole time. His lessons are often very painful, and pain carries a great deal of information. The scrappy underdog is not alone in this pursuit, of course. There are many of him. There are very few of the comfortable, entrenched market actors, and they have created this circumstance by their own hand through crushing and purchasing of competitors over time. He spends and spends, fending off competition, and so long as his expenditures do not exceed his revenues, he may do this in perpetuity. But should a point be reached at which the expenditures exceed the revenues, his time is up. All he can do at that point is drain the resources which have allowed him to maintain his position. And once he has drained them beyond a certain point, he is now on a level playing field with the scrappy underdog, who is by now in all ways better informed and motivated than the comfortable entrenched market actor. The scrappy underdog is an underdog no more, and in due course, he also ceases to be scrappy. He obtains the comfort. He now has the resources. He now buys the competitors. He now uses his power to crush those he cannot buy. Now he becomes comfortable, and as a consequence, he meets the same fate as the actor he just defeated, and so the cycle continues. One cannot here draw a direct line to politics. Political power endows one with the means beyond the fictitious market scenario we have just described. The market scenario has a tendency to give way to the reality with which we are actually met. Because the comfortable entrenched actor ventures beyond market aims into political ones and uses state power to retain his position. He may do this much longer than he can in the imagined pure free market, in part because he can sustain his expenditures at the expense of those he means to crush. But but political power is no more static a thing than money. Even kings had to contend with all manner of threats to their authority, and those who must stand for re-election every so often face greater perils than this by far. Even upon the realization that he can rig elections, he can only do so to the extent such rigging remains plausible, and to even know what that means, he must have some connection with the people he means to deceive. Having walled himself off from criticism, he loses this capacity, and this disconnect becomes more obvious to the people he aims to govern. This state of affairs is unsustainable as the market fiction is as unsustainable as the market fiction we have just described. In the most extreme circumstance, the people he abuses may take up arms against him. Even if he manages to muster the forces to quell the rebellion, the challenge to his authority is a wound and may be quite severe. Soldiers typically become soldiers to fight foreigners, not their fellow citizens. Police typically become police to fight crime, not dissent. They will endure much for the sake of their positions and paychecks and pensions, but their tolerance is no more limitless than the patience or gullibility of the broader populace. But force of arms need not ensue to displace the entrenched political actor. The rigging of elections is a thing that must be done with some caution, and caution is not his strong suit. It requires many hands, and secrets do not fare well under such circumstances. If the election loses its legitimacy in the eyes of the people, the government it purports to elect suffers the same loss. Then the government will, in any meaningful sense of the word, cease to exist. There will remain then only an ever ever shorter list of names of guilty parties. What follows, of course, is no more pleasant than it is certain, but the power once concentrated is thus dispersed, and the game begins anew as the players seek to consolidate power for themselves. The currency of that transaction is inspiration. I dare say that we are better suited to that contest than are others. 
But we are hopefully a long way off from civilizational collapse in a point where one can only hope to inspire in the absence of a functioning economy or political system. We should work to prevent this outcome, most notably because those of us with families to care for would not wish for our children to endure that chaos, but also because it should nonetheless, uh, but also because should it nonetheless ensue, one's capacity to inspire will rest to some degree on whether they are seen as having contributed to the problems the people then face. If you are the party responsible for the people's unhappiness and the people see it that way, they will not easily trust you to restore them to comfort. I mentioned Brian Tracy before, and I will, uh, I will use one of his books to illustrate a few important points of this. The book is titled 100 Absolutely Unbreakable Laws of Business Success. And as you may have heard me say in the past, lists make for great radio, but there is more to my choice than this, of course. It would uh, obviously not be good use of our limited time together for me to read the entire list or to go into great detail on each point. You can read or listen to the book on your own time for that. But I will grab some key portions and hopefully give you something to think about in the course of that. Like any legislative text, these 100 laws are broken down into categories, and those categories are the laws of life, the laws of success, the laws of business, leadership, money, selling, negotiating, and time management. The first law of life, asserts Tracy, is the law of cause and effect, and what he has to say to open the chapter is worth quoting at length, quote, Aristotle asserted that we live in a world governed by law, not chance. He stated that everything happens for a reason, whether or not we know what it is. He said that every effect has a specific cause or causes. Every cause or action has an effect of some kind, whether we can see it or whether we like it or not. This is the granddaddy law or the iron law of Western thought or Western philosophy. The relentless search for truth, the causal relations between events, has led to the rise of the West in science, technology, medicine, philosophy, and even warfare for more than 2,000 years. Today, this focus is driving the technological advances that are changing our world so dramatically. This law says that achievement, wealth, happiness, prosperity, and business success are all the direct and indirect effects or results of specific causes or actions. This simply means that if you can be clear about the effect or result you want, you can probably achieve it. You can study others who have achieved the same goal, and by doing what they did, you can get the same results, end of quote. Now, I beat the hell out of myself a lot of the time. I consider myself to be responsible for everything in my life, and of course, you are responsible for everything in yours. We can complain rightly about the actions of others, and, the, um, and certainly the disreputable behavior of other people is part of any chain of cause and effect. But even when you hear me complain about external circumstances, most notably intelligence agencies, in those moments where I am living up to my own standards and hopefully in those moments which inspire your confidence, I am simultaneously trying to figure out how I and we navigate the challenges these things that we're complaining about present to us, because that is the task after all. There is nothing magical separating us from our goals. There is matter and energy organized ever so thusly, and as such, we are all bound by the same laws so far as the forces of the earth are concerned. I do not know how to write a computer program in C++, but this does not mean it is impossible for me to do. It just means I do not know how to do it. If I knew how, it would be a rather straightforward process. If there is some distance between where you are and where you want to be, you need only know how to get to that point and then do what is required to accomplish that goal. Now, 
I should importantly note that I am not one who says, as Tracy sometimes wrongly asserts, that you can do anything, okay? It may well be that some goals are beyond your entire lifelong capacity. In such a case, you would need to adjust your goals, but when well-adjusted, satisfaction is achievable. The second law of life, asserts Tracy, is the law of belief, and it feeds into the first thing we just said. You, You always act in a manner consistent with your beliefs, especially your beliefs about yourself. He goes into some inspirational stuff, which borders on nonsensical, but you might expect that from a man who is trying to sell books. What is important to take away from this, in my view, is that you cannot accomplish things you do not believe that you can accomplish. You must set reasonable standards for yourself and for others. Otherwise, failure is inevitable, but reasonable and ambitious are not mutually exclusive things. If you set reasonable goals and you fail, and uh, I'm sorry, if you set unreasonable goals and you fail to accomplish them, then this is necessarily going to alter your beliefs. It's going to inform your beliefs about yourself. If you set unreasonable goals and then you fail, it will it will tell you that you are prone to failure. And so you should set reasonable beliefs so that you can accomplish them, which will inform your beliefs about yourself that you can succeed, you see. If you set reasonable goals and you do accomplish them, of course, this will also alter your beliefs, as I said. For me, this features most prominently in my mind about my adventures in physical fitness, say. I basically drank myself to death for like 20 years, you know? I considered getting fat and losing my energy inevitable consequences of time. Then, one day, I decided I was going to get into better shape. And when I lost 50 pounds back in 2014, my whole life completely changed. I decided that if I could lose 50 pounds, I could gain some of it back in muscle, and I started lifting weights, and my life changed even more. My politics changed, most notably. I stopped hating the system. I didn't want to destroy it anymore. I wanted to control it. In competitive sports, you know, athletes, they're told, visualize the win. In politics, one of the reasons incumbents have such a huge advantage is because the people have no trouble imagining the incumbent winning the election. They see them in the office. It's also why the vice president so often runs for president. People have no trouble imagining him in the White House because he's been there. Some, maybe most Christians, will tell you that good works will not alone lead one to salvation. They must actually believe in Christ. The reason for this is fairly simple. If you believe in Christ, then good works will necessarily follow, because one acts consistently with their beliefs, right? One could hardly imagine believing that an almighty God is judging their actions and all that comes along with this, and then go forth and live a life of evil. Absent that faith, by contrast, one could easily do good things during the day and do terrible things at night. So the belief is what is given salience in Christianity and in most other religious traditions. The fourth law of life is the law of attraction. And if you've listened to anybody talk about the law of attraction, you know, like, there's a lot of mystical garbage often attached to this phrase. But you don't need mysticism to, like, observe the observable. You've seen this in action before. People, like water, tend to find their own level. The old saying, birds of a feather flock together, is quoted by Tracy, and it is salient and not entirely ethnic. Like beliefs, like cause and effect, if, if you what you project into the world is, is what comes back to you, okay? If you project into the world that you are hopeless and miserable, then you will attract hopelessness and misery to you. If you believe that you are worthy of success and love and achievement, then this is what you will project into the world, and this is what you will attract back into your life. Now, you know, it's not—the law of attraction gives it this impression that, you know, 
that's all there is to it or something like that, but it's not. And even if you under, if you read the literature about it, even some of the sappier literature, that's really not what they say. Much of what he has to say throughout the book calls back to these concepts. His elaborations on these ideas are valuable, but beyond the scope of what we aim to do here today. So I'm going to skip ahead to the 14th law. And this is under the category uh, of success, and it is the law of preparation. The first two paragraphs are worth quoting at length. The mark of the serious person or the real professional in any field is that he takes far more time to prepare than the average. The non-serious person or the non-professional always attempts to bluff or to wing it. He tries to get by with a minimum of preparation. He doesn't realize that his level of preparation is immediately evident to everyone around him. A quote from Abraham Lincoln shaped my life and my end. This is still quoting from the book. I, this is not, I'm, not quoting, I'm not saying that Abraham Lincoln shaped my life. He says, as a young man in Springfield, Illinois, I shall study and prepare myself and someday my chance will come. He recognized, as do all great men and women, that painstaking preparation was the key to his future. Now, I'm not quoting anymore. Now, uh, let's take this and apply this to the alt-right in the wake of the Trump presidency, okay? How many of these people who now consider themselves deserving of political power had been involved in politics? And I mean really involved seriously in politics, as in like making inroads with the Republican Party for more than two years prior to Trump's announcement for the presidency. It may be accurate to say zero, but let us just be generous here and say very few, right? Most of these people were not involved in politics in any capacity at all. A larger number than that, but still a very small number, had been activists or commentators of various stripes for some number of years. But even if we call this preparation, their numbers are still very small. And one really stretches the definition of preparedness, definition of preparedness, quite far to call this activity preparation for the task of politics and governing. It is all theory and ideological fervor. They're winging it, as he said before. So if we accept that preparation is what separates serious people from non-serious people, success from failure, then it should come as absolutely no surprise that our people are not in political power. That is the perfectly natural and appropriate state of affairs, and we have nobody to blame but our past selves, the decisions that we made before all of this. If we want to stop blaming ourselves, well, first we need to start blaming ourselves, okay? And then if we want to get over that and stop having cause to blame ourselves, then we ought to act now to become prepared for a future opportunity and to be prepared when that opportunity presents itself. Otherwise, we are non-serious people and non-serious people do not deserve the right to govern. And this goes for romantic relationships, you know? The reason that I decided to lose weight in 2014 was because I had a really painful romantic experience. And even though like, it, it wasn't that salient to the issue, it wasn't that my physical appearance was responsible for the relationship failure, but I did know that being fat and drunk was not increasing my romantic options, right? I mean, it was pretty straightforward and I couldn't just snap my fingers to solve this problem. It was something that I had to like work on over time and put a lot of effort into. And then over a year later, this like beautiful woman shows up with a winning lotto ticket, literally. And I was like, oh, and, and she was like, oh, I want to marry you. And I was like, holy crap, it worked. And well, you know, it didn't work. But, you know, that's another story, which though it contains valuable lessons, I'm not going to burden you with today. 
But I was able to believe that it would work and have every reason to believe that my payoff is still in the coming because that's kind of how it does work, right? Like you prepare and you prepare and you keep on getting everything in place for when an opportunity presents itself. And then you act before that window of opportunity passes, okay? That moment, whether it is in love or in money or in politics, it's very ephemeral, okay? It shows up and it's gone. You do not have time to see it coming and then to prepare and then to act. You have to be prepared when the moment arrives and then you have to, and then you have to make decisions within that very limited op- window of opportunity. And if you do not, then you might be waiting many years before that window opens again. And, and depending on how many years you've got left, <laughs> might be over for you. And so, and it's appropriate, by the way, that you would have to wait years because even though it's upsetting to you while you have to wait, like that's normal because it takes years to prepare. The 15th law also under success is the law of forced efficiency. And rather than quote at length, I'll give you an anecdotal example. The idea here is basically that you are necessarily going to be forced to make economic decisions about your own time and attention if you try to accomplish many things. And to accomplish any singular great thing, you will need to accomplish many smaller things. So this is perfectly normal for you to do. The idea here is that, you know, I'm experiencing this right now, right? So I come to you with plans for a content network and AI and advertising and starting an ethnocentric business collective to take over a city and expand our territorial control into national sovereignty, you know, and a couple other things. As time goes forward, I am forced by necessity to narrow my ambitions. Even in the likely event that you are more capable than I, you will meet similar limitations. But this is actually totally normal, and it doesn't mean you should not try to do many things, actually. Like, I consider my collection of unfinished projects to be one of my more valuable assets, believe it or not. I'm constantly trying things, and when I reach barriers that I would have to stop doing this show to overcome, those projects get put on the back burner because, of course, as they say, the show must go on. But the work I have done is not discarded, nor is the experience I have gained lost. I have gained... I have lots of things on my computer that border right now on turnkey solutions and that they require only the right talent to come along or me to set aside some time to acquire the skills to complete them. I have only prioritized some things ahead of others, and this is perfectly normal. Today, perhaps most notably, I purchased, I've told you about, I had to purchase this upgraded license for the software um, that, the software that functions, the membership functions on the, the software that operates the membership functions on surrealpolitics.com requires an upgraded license in order to do the um, the content network thing I'm talking about. And so I actually bought that. Um, I bought that today, and that's actually a pretty big deal. So it was on sale today for $267. It was down from $397 as the normal price. So I saw the sale, and I said, okay, well, now is the time to do this, and I bought the thing. And tomorrow, most likely, I'll install the license and begin testing in preparation for the launch of the network. But for a while, I had backburnered this, right? But if I hadn't set up the test network and the free version of it and spent all these hours tinkering with the thing, then, like, buying that license would be a complete waste of money because, in this instance, the the, the license is a yearly license, okay? So, like, if you buy the thing and you have not the vaguest idea how to you it, the, cl- the clock on what you've just purchased is already ticking, okay? And so, you know, sitting on the thing is a waste of money. 
So you want to buy it, then you want to start generating revenue so that the license renewal a year from now is routine business expense. So, I mean, that's that's a little bit of like a, a callback to the law of preparedness, but it's also just that like I prioritize the show, right? The, the show provides the revenue to do everything else and it provides like the attention for everything else. So nobody cares about me making a content network if I'm not producing good content, right? Everything stems from that. So while I dedicate time to what I, I dedicate what time I can to other ambitions, the law of forced efficiency says that I have to, you know, recognize and account for my limitations and, and make priority decisions. And the priority has to be the show, right? And this not incidentally is like, this is what bothers me about like the anti-capitalist streak through the, through the alt-right. Okay. Like scarcity is a real thing that you can observe and you can observe it most strikingly, like in your own limitations of time and attention, right? You have to make economic decisions, no matter how your government is structured, saying that like we can accomplish without limits, whatever we wish through public policy, it's silliness. And it ignores this fact above all else. Um, this transitions well into the 16th law, the law of flexibility, which um, of which Tracy says, quote, success is best achieved when you are clear about the goal, but flexible about the process of getting there. And he goes on to say a little bit more worth quoting. And he says, this is one of the most important discoveries made by high achieving men and women. When you set a clear goal for yourself and make a plan, you usually have a fairly good idea of what it is you will have to do to get whatever it is you want to achieve. However, a thousand things can change, each of which can require changes to your plan. The most optimistic and creative people are those who are open, flexible, and fluid in the face of the inevitable and continual changes they are required to make as they move toward their goals. Permit me to use some of the more obvious examples from my own life here. I did not plan on being arrested and sued for the Charlottesville incident. I did not plan on going to prison for three years over a completely different and far dumber issue, right? My plan on August 10th, 2017 was to keep steadily adding paywall customers in the hopes of reaching revenues exceeding $10,000 a month. Does that sound familiar to any of you? And I wanted to do that so I could hire people and do much of what I am trying to accomplish right now. Circumstances arose, which caused me to alter my immediate plans. But my goals are still in sight. I'm arguably closer to achieving them than I ever have been. When I went to jail in Charlottesville, I was podcasting from the jail, you know, and, and, and I was planning to go to trial. When an opportunity to avoid that trial arose, I changed my plans again, and I accepted the misdemeanor hit to my record, and I went home to live to fight another day. I tried to get payment processing for the radical agenda. And when I couldn't, I changed my plans again and started edgygoodies.com and penned and pronounced in the Outlaw Conservative Podcast. And before I could make my goals achieved with those young enterprises, the FBI broke my door down and dragged me off to prison. Again, not part of my plan, obviously. And so again, I was podcasting from the jail. Then I went to the CMU and they stopped me from podcasting. So I changed my plans again. I decided to shut the hell up and listen for a little while. And you know what? Listening is valuable. I read more books and listened to more radio and did a great deal of quiet thinking and talked a great deal with a very interesting man with very valuable experience by the name of Victor Boot. And I developed my worldview and strategy in ways that would not otherwise be possible. 
And, you know, having been uh, off the air for a little while, when I went down to that civil trial in Virginia, I made quite a a splash, many of you might have heard. A firm rigidity of my purpose has remained, okay? But I was forced, not so differently than, you know, the law of forced efficiency, to learn flexibility. I had to make my plans subject to adjustment because I had no other choice. And now I am more powerful for this because obstacles, they're just things to navigate instead of barriers. They don't prevent me from accomplishing my goals. They're just part of the process of achieving them. In keeping with the law of forced efficiency, let us, you know, prioritize and move ahead to uh, cover some laws of business, beginning with the 20th law, the law of purpose. Of this, Tracy says, many people think that the law of business, uh, that the purpose of a business, I should say, is to make a profit. However, while they Uh, While that may be the purpose of the individual who starts or invests in the business, a business is really a separate entity that has a purpose of its own. In fact, a good way to assess the uh, the purpose for the existence of a business is to imagine that the owners of the business had to appear before a tribunal each year and justify getting permission for the business to carry on. You will immediately see that making a profit would not be good enough of a reason for the enterprise to justify its continued existence. And actually, as it turns out, that used to be what you had to do in the United States. If you wanted to get like an incorporate, if you wanted to incorporate a company, you had to get like permission. The business had to serve a purpose. You had to say what it was. And like you could lose your business. You know, you'd no, like what, you know, you're in business to make money. Get out of here. Go away. We don't, <laughs> we don't care if you make money. That's not our purpose. Profits are not the purpose of a business. Profits are the measurements of how well the business is performing its purpose. The same is true of happiness in your own life, okay? Your purpose is not the pursuit of happiness, actually. If you pursue happiness, you're going to be completely miserable. You have to pursue more meaningful purposes, and your success in this will be measured in happiness. And the same thing is true of politics. If a political party exists for no other purpose than political power, then it will in due course not have any conduit thereto. Political power is the measurement of its fulfillment of its purpose. And I could go on at some length to justify how this seems to contrast with other things I have said. This is not lost on me if you're screaming at your screen. But the law of forced efficiency, you know, makes this prohibitive right now. So in this moment, I will just say that in our instance, political power is like a necessary tool in our arsenal that we do not presently have. So we have to obtain it. But of course, if this pursuit becomes an end in itself, then even if we by chance obtain political power, then we will quickly lose it because political power is a means and not an end. Okay. And there's. Plenty more in this book I'd love to talk about, but as I was writing this, showtime was approaching and I had to start doing my sound checks and whatnot, okay? And so um, I had to more or less stop there. I happen to know of a Telegram channel. I'm, I'm not saying I know who started it. I'm not saying I don't. I'm just saying I happen to know of a Telegram channel that makes audiobooks and ebooks available for download right from Telegram. It's very simple. It's called Dissident Right Library, and you can find it at t.me slash library, like Dissident right library is a D right library. You don't spell dissident now. It's just D right library. Okay. And if you go there, you're going to see a bunch of books uh, there. Some of them you might have heard me mention. And, uh, you know, I don't know how often the thing is updated, but you might expect that, um, that, that books are updated on that channel from time to time. 
And I think that you will find it a valuable resource, and I certainly hope that you do. And so uh, with that, I will say hello to all of you and uh, ask uh, what's on in all of your minds. Hey, Chris, um, I was wondering if I, it's, uh, if it's okay if I talk a little bit about um, prescription medication, because um, I mentioned that in the chat last time, and I realized I'm actually not the only person in this group who's uh, been through the uh, pharmaceutical industry and probably uh, had a negative experience. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, tell me what's on your mind about prescription medication. So um, basically, one one thing I've found is that um, they the the doctors um, put people on these medications after they've only met somebody for like seventy two hours, let's say, and um, uh, you know they don't really. Um, they, a lot of times, they will take something that is a temporary problem, and they will just assume that it's a permanent problem. Um, Another thing I've found is that a lot of times um, the medications they give you actually um, stop working over time. Uh, like with an SSRI, the goal is to um, create more serotonin in the brain. The problem is if you've been on it for a while, the brain will just uh, kill off some of its serotonin receptors in order to set the serotonin level back to normal. Likewise, with uh, drugs, antipsychotics designed to block dopamine. Um, a lot of times what will happen is at first it decreases your dopamine level, but then the brain wants to reset the dopamine level back to something higher. And, um, so it will just grow extra dopamine receptors and, um, the thing is that it, it works basically like an addiction, just like with an opiate addiction. Um, you know, if somebody has been doing an opiate for a long time, their brain stops producing the opiates. And then if they decrease the dose, then the brain or get off it completely, the brain eventually gets used to um, producing its own uh, opiates again. Um, you know, uh, um, Another interesting thing is that um, the SSRIs they give can cause mania in some people and can cause a bipolar diagnosis. Um, now, I'm not sure if um, this happens with everybody or if it happens with people who were already predisposed to bipolar disorder, but um, uh the, the thing is that they can give you an SSRI and then you have mania and then they'll put you on an antipsychotic to try to cancel out the mania. And then you're on an antipsychotic, you gain maybe 50 pounds. And um, it's, it's interesting how it's, it's sort of like um, uh, they, can, they can take a small problem and turn it into a much bigger one. Yeah, I think the the phenomenons that you're the phenomena that you're describing are familiar to me. I mean, you know, I had a family member who was getting divorced after he caught his wife with another man, and he went to a uh, and he went to a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist was like, "Oh, you seem depressed. I'll give you antidepressants." And you know, I heard about this, and I'm like, "Are you people out of your effing minds?" Like, no, 
The man's upset about a real-world circumstance. There's nothing wrong with his brain. You're, this is not an illness that you need to cure. Uh, you're completely, this is ridiculous. Um, and, of course, all of these things, they refer to them as side effects. But what they are is known as effects. They are what the medication does. It's not, it's not, it's not that actually all that confusing. And so, like, they, they describe them as side effects as if to minimize their impact, but they are actually like what the drug does to you. And so, you know, you know, the, the things that they, the things that they want you to find salient, they describe as what the drug does. And the things that they don't want you to find salient, they describe as side effects. And this is a word game and it has nothing to do with the pharmacological, you know, effect of the drug. And so, you know, I think that, um, you know, these things, uh, I'm very skeptical of that industry. I'm also, I should say, you know, I'm very, I'm very, I'm trying to be cautious in discussing it, okay? Because I have met people who like require antipsychotic medication, okay? And that's a real, real, real phenomenon. And if you've ever known anybody who's in that position, it's really, it's a terrible thing for the people who know them um, when they decide to go off their medication. And like, you know, there's there's not a perfect solution to that, you know, to that situation. And so, you know, I try right. to, well, I, I try to, I tr the only thing I want to get across is that, like, I do not want to, any, I don't want anything I say here or anything that um, anybody hears anywhere else to be like, okay, like, go off your meds, okay? Like, that's right. a decision that has to be made as a consequence of like really informed thought with people who understand the specifics of one's circumstances. But I agree with you that psychiatry in particular and prescription drugs more broadly, I mean, you know, the COVID vaccine is the best example, perhaps that like, you know, you know, there are people who are sort of invested in selling these things and they become sales representatives and then it has, becomes very little to do with the purpose of the enterprise. Yes. Well, I, I think also another thing is that when the medical industry uh, recommends to people that they try getting off their meds, um, oftentimes they will they will um, propose a taper um, that takes place over, let's say, uh, two months. And what's inevitably going to happen if you're on a high dose of one of these medications and you taper down to zero over the course of two months is that you'll just have a horrible relapse and then everybody around you will say, oh, I guess that's proof that you, you're, you do have a genetically caused mental illness, mental illness. And so that's proof you need to be on the meds. I think a lot of times if somebody tapered by five to 10% a month, um, they might find that they are able to function without the medication. Whereas um, the way they tell people to try getting off uh, they're actually setting people up for failure and, um, well, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not informed enough to speak of, you know, the, the appropriate way. And I don't think that there's a categorical answer to that question because of course these things are chemicals and they have, you know, biological processes that they impact. And so I, I would, I, my, limited understanding of it would suggest that there's there's not a uniform means by which to uh by which to get somebody off of these medications i think it depends on the medication it depends on the circumstances of the patient and you know 
it's unfortunate, I would say, that so many so many people who purport to be doctors have become sales representatives. And so um, that's a real phenomenon that, you know, makes these decisions very difficult because you can't necessarily just say, oh, well, you know, the doctor will tell me what to do. You need to, you know, inform yourself and you need to challenge your doctor. I, I think it'd be a, a fair way to describe it. But, you know, I do have some experience with this that like, you know, doctors do listen to patients uh, more than probably a lot of people think. And like, you know, if somebody is is coming to question the value of their medication and then they come to the doctor and they say, well, you know, here's my understanding of it and here's the things that I'm reading it. You know, if you have a good doctor, you know, your doctor will talk to you about that and and will process the information that you're that you're receiving. And if he doesn't do that, then, you know, should the should the means be available to that patient, then they would do well to you know, find a doctor who will at least like have an intelligent conversation with them about the information that they're consuming, because, um, you know, because there are doctors who will do that in any case. And I mean, like my brother went through this whole thing. I'm not going to talk about the specifics of his problem, but my brother had a, a pretty serious health condition that went on for a number of years. And he would and he would just read about it all the time and he'd go in and he'd have these really like high level conversations with the doctor. And I was present for some of these things. And sometimes he'd bring up things. A doctor was like, I, I actually have no idea what you're talking about. Maybe you could, you know, send me the thing. And my brother would send him the thing. And then the doctor would talk about it. And the doctor would say, well, that's interesting. And the doctor would then apply his expertise to the information provided. And I mean, um, you know, a lot of these things were beyond my capacity to understand because I wasn't doing all this reading. But what I was able to ascertain from it was that, you know, the doctor was very thoughtful and the doctor was listening to what my brother had to say and not just in the sense of like, okay, like I'm going to hear you out and be supportive of your emotional concern. He was actually like having a high level, you know, discussion with my brother and processing the information and saying, okay, I actually see some merit in what you're, what you're showing me. Uh, according to my understanding of it, here's how I would alter it. And they would sort of have a negotiation and they would alter his medications and stuff like that. And so, um, you know, to, say much more i'd have to get into the specifics of my brother's medical history and i shouldn't do that but you know i think that those things are worth doing including with you know patients who are on psychiatric medication it, it's it's important to participate because if you just go in there and say you know okay doc fix me and he's like okay uh here's some pills and then you go in there and you say everything's fine or everything sucks you know you're going to get more or less pills and it's not that's actually not really the way that things are supposed to work yeah, you know, I, I think that um, maybe in your experience, um, that's what you found with your brother's situation. I know there's a, I, I went to survivingantidepressants.org where they give tapering advice and definitely a lot of people there have had the opposite experience. Now, they might not be representative sample. There are all sorts of statistical things you need to take into consideration. But um, I think it's partly, you know, different doctors might have different personality traits. Like if you, uh, if you think about uh, Myers-Briggs type indicator, there might be the intuitors and the sensors. And basically the, the, the intuitors might be like, well, I want to learn as much as I possibly can about it. And those might be the better doctors. And then maybe the ones with the sensor personality might just be like, I just want to get the information I need to get through the day. And I think that there are a lot of those types as well who might not be, you know, they might say, I went to medical school for a decade. There's nothing else I need to know. Yeah. Anybody who thinks that they've learned all they need to learn is, you know, 
they're a pretty good example of of what I was just saying about, you know, the sort of the entrenched market actor that, you know, they they lose their deservingness of their position and in due in due course they lose their position with it, you know. Right. At least that's the hope, um, you know. With doctors, I mean, you know, they are also the example of the political favoritism that ensues, right? You you know, the medical industry is so uh, the the medical industry is so heavily regulated, through, it, it, and it largely serves to you know block out competition. And so, unfortunately, I think that too many bad doctors are able to continue as a result of some of the regulations that we have. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's all I had to say on that subject. Uh, Money Penny says in a chat, she says a good doctor is a partner and will listen to what you have to say. Sounds like your brother had a good doctor. I agree. What do you call a doctor who got a D average in college? Doctor. That's very uh that is is a good way of describing it indeed and so um okay matt has uh done with his point on medication anybody want to chime in on the medication subject or on the um or on the opening monologue does anybody want to chime in oh what, what do you uh money penny wants to chime in go ahead unmute your microphone dear can you hear me i sure can Thank you for the opening monologue. I, um, a lot of things kind of struck true with me. I struggle with success a lot and, um, let's just say I'm not that successful and I try to figure out why that is. Um, I definitely need to read more into these laws. Thank you for the uh, book recommendation and, um, you know, gives me some hope for the future. Thank you, sir. You're very welcome. You know, I think um, I uh, I I know a little bit about your life. I'm not going to uh, to publish it. I, I don't know that um, I don't. I, I think that you have uh, you have accomplished some very meaningful things, and that um, if you accomplish greater things still, then fantastic. And I wouldn't want to discourage you from that. But um, I think that uh, I think that you have some very wonderful things to show for your life, from what I know. And so you know, always pursue more. Though I mean, you want to be uh, you want to be as successful as you can be. So by all means. Okay. Um, some things can be published for sure. Um, I have a uh, husband, two kids, very proud of. But um, my husband and I decided uh, it would be best to have a stay-at-home parent. And I was making a little bit more money at the time. So my husband is a stay-at-home dad and I work. But I have found a lot of trouble climbing uh, the retail ladder, right? So I am a hiring manager of a retail store, but for the 12 years I've put into this, I think that I am very much uh, not exactly well accomplished. Well, and I have read books. I have a t- <laughs> Tony Robbins, a, a sales background. And I'm trying to figure out what it is about me specifically that causes me to be unsuccessful. I prepare and put a lot of time into my plans. I have numbers to show for it, but it seems like the people above me constantly rate me under what I think I should be. And I don't know how to square that circle. I mean, obviously I'm the common denominator, if I've been rated 
that is underperforming by so many, it must be true, right? But well, if I try to be more objective about things, I, I'm meeting sales metrics and everything else, but others tend to take credit for my doing. But the female aspect of things is I feel like I'm um, I'm hesitant to uh, be more aggressive against my uh, claiming of those metrics, if you will. So I kind of know where my shortcomings fall, but at the same time, damn it. Well, here's here's what I would say to that is that I think that it's not a, an entirely unexpected phenomenon that your superiors are taking credit for your accomplishments, okay? And from what what I understand about retail, I think that there's limited room for advancement, okay? And so, like, the field that you're in, and uh, do correct me if I'm incorrect about this, like, you know, those people who are above you, it's not in their interests for you to advance because all that you can do is replace them. And unless they have expectations of moving up, there's not there's not upward pressure on the chain of command here, right? And so the the situation that you're in is fundamentally that like the the job that you're in, I'm not going to call it a dead end job, but it does seem to me like there's 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 hard physical limits on your upward mobility there. And so, you know, if you want to advance beyond a certain position, it seems to be that you're going to to have to make a a if you will a horizontal move so that you're moving, you know, not you're you're not moving up necessarily, but you're moving horizontally across the 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 field of success into a place where there there is upward mobility where where your superiors claiming credit for your success causes them to get promoted and then you get to be promoted into their position and then you take credit for the success of the people below you and there's the the upward pressure on on your life right and if that's not the situation the job that you're in i think that i think that that's the the phenomenon that you're describing What's frustrating to me is um, I got fired from my last job. I was there for nine years for a very, if I say a bullshit reason, everybody is going to disagree and they know that there's something there, right? But when, when I got hired in the position I was, I, I told my boss, I'm like, look, my job is to make you look good so that you can then be promoted to the next level. And that's what I want to do. And my boss is a 27-year-old who who brags about his drinking escapades on the golf course. Oh, but yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, drinking escapades on the golf course and, you know, in corporate America will actually, you know, serve to get you up the corporate ladder a little bit, depending on the field that you're in, right? And so, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily the worst thing that, that this is what he aspires to. And by the way, and, and and if those and if that is not what facilitates his advancement, then it could result in his downfall, which would then, you know, result in your elevation, you know. But, you know, I, I think that um, your your dissatisfaction with your superior is not, I think, uncommon. And um, it seems to me that uh as I said, I'm I'm sorry that this is repetitive, but I'm this is what's coming back to my mind. It, it seems to me that 
okay, you had this problem at the other job and maybe maybe that on your resume or that explaining that is a it presents a challenge to moving to another position with greater upward mobility. But I would hope that you are, um, you know, if you are not already, then I would encourage you to be involved in a search for another job while you are working. And so like being on job sites, um, I haven't done this in a few years, but you know, I, I used to go on monster.com was for example. And like, I would just apply to, jo- I would apply to jobs all the time, you know, and most of the time I wouldn't even get responses, but every once in a while I did. And I'd go on job interviews with no expectation of getting the job. Like interviewing for a job is actually like a valuable skill. Right. And so I would, uh, if it, I see you nodding, yeah. maybe, maybe you're telling me that you already are doing this. Oh, just a secret for everybody. Okay. So I'm an assistant manager of a retail store. I, I just real quick, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but like, I just want you, you, you said a secret for everybody. And I just want you to keep in mind that although we are behind the paywall, any idiot with six, seven, six dollars and 70 cents can, can be here. And so you don't want to tell secrets here and a secret for everybody ceases to be a secret. And you may continue on now that I've warned you of that. Okay. So you have no idea your competition when you are applying for a job. So let's just say if if you are making less than $25 an hour, uh, your competition is interviewing for jobs, saying things like, I handle stress by smoking a lot of weed. They show up to interviews in flip-flops and t-shirts. Uh, I have only had like one interview out of the last 20 actually dress up and do a little bit of research for the job position that they have. And I'm in my position looking at resumes for people applying for my same level, misspelling everything and still getting the fucking job. Like, dude, I... I think I entered into this business way lower than I need to. If you spell everything correctly and you do just a little bit of research and you know how to interview, even if you're at the the, the starting level, just put a little bit of preparation into it. You could totally get a job at my level, like almost entry level, if you just speak intelligently, because your competition is just nothing. Okay. So just put a little bit of preparation in it, do some research, show up to the interview, not wearing flip-flops, don't talk about weed, and oh my God, you could get the job. Well, there you go. I mean, and what I do understand about the job market is like, especially after this COVID thing, like people are averse to, you know, they're like, okay, so I'm very happy to sit in my underwear at the house and type away on the computer for you as long as you give me everything I've ever desired, right? (laughs) And so like, that's a, you know, it seems to me that met with that circumstance, there is more opportunity for upward mobility than than there was in 2019. And so like you're describing to me a situation where coming, people are coming and interviewing with you for for the jobs below you. Are, Are you engaged in the job searches that I've described? Or maybe we shouldn't even, you know, say that, but you know, it, it would be a prudent thing for you to do. I would go so far as to say is like, and, I, and by the way, for everybody, if you're, if you're in a job where you, even if you think that you have the capacity for upward mobility of the job, 
it, it would still be prudent to, you know, to see what other opportunities exist. But especially if you're if you if you don't believe that there's the potential for upward mobility, it seems to be that it would be a very prudent thing indeed, you know, for you to seek a a a horizontal, you know, move to see where there is more, you know, potential for escalation, elevation. Matt says, I'd recommend spending your spare time gaining new skills, even if they aren't directly related to your job. Um, uh, uh, Mr. Soprano, maybe get a few million dollars. Oh, I'm going to sue you for discrimination if you're not hiring people who can't spell English and smoke weed. <laughs> um, get, maybe get a few million dollars for getting rejected. There you go. Um, and uh, so, you know, go ahead. Matt. I, I have a for money penny um how did you choose this career is this a career you chose because you enjoy it or because um you just made a lot of money or somebody expected you to get into this field so it it started out with me i was uh working for a family business in sales i Kind of going back to the uh, prescription medication thing, I have a very severe sleep disorder. And it was not agreeing with me as far as the family business. So I got a job working retail and I knew, or I thought I did, that if I just do what I was supposed to do and all of these books that I read and how to be successful in my sales background, I could get a job working retail and support a family on one paycheck. If I just did what I was supposed to do, I started off as part-time and three months later, I got a grown up job full-time working retail. And with that single paycheck I do, I support a family of four. So I, I, I got what I accomplished, but I do enjoy retail because I don't know customers that come in. It's um, needs a little bit more expertise, I guess. I'm able to help them out. I get a feeling of fulfillment knowing what I should know. I give them advice, and there have been many customers have that have told me that I, I saved them from a failed Christmas or whatever. I, I don't want to get into more detail, but I like it. I do like retail. I'm curious, have you ever taken uh, like a personality test? Uh, it could be like MBTI, Big Five, Hexaco, any of those personality tests? I took the Jordan Peterson one. but uh, Okay, so that must be the Big Five. I, I That's think the one he promotes. Did, did he... Um... Do you do you remember a uh, a categorical outcome of the uh, Peterson test that you would like to share with us, Money Penny? Um, basically, I uh, where my danger zone is is surprise, surprise, being too agreeable. Um, I feel like in management, my job is to facilitate the success of those under me. And to almost serve them as a customer, as a normal salesperson might. Um, and I tend to be a little bit more agreeable because of it. However, as you know, I've uh, listened to a lot of Molyneux. I, when I criticize people, I use a lot of <laughs> statistics, numbers, let's just say objective math, and that tends to have an edge that most people are not prepared to deal with. 
So I usually win my arguments in the short term, but I lose my progression in the long term. So I have had store managers removed because of my arguments, though I cannot rise above the level of supervisor, right? So um so so that's interesting. I mean, you're you're high in agreeableness. I mean, generally speaking, people who are high in agreeableness end up on the bottom of pretty much any structure. You know, it's it's sort of like um you need to be competitive um in order to rise up and if there are other people who you know have this attitude of do whatever you have to do in order to succeed and and maybe if you have an attitude of more saying like let's try to maintain the peace then that could put you in a, at a disadvantage but you said you're I, i'm a little bit confused it sounds like there's a bit of maybe a contradiction you you say you're high in agreeableness but you also um use statistics in order to win arguments and it results in um maybe a disturbance of the peace okay so every job for the most part is a sales job so if you're good at sales you can be pretty much good at anything because you're either selling a customer you're selling your boss or you're selling your employees, but just about every job is a sales job. Now, the problem is people do not make decisions based off of facts and evidence. They make decisions emotionally. And I have a little bit of a disconnect where I have trouble understanding the emotional reasons behind their decision making. So I can come to somebody and say, look, if you make this decision and that decision, you'll reduce costs by this much plus increase efficiency by this much, they will glaze over and say, yeah, we'll consider it. And then they'll end up going with the douchebag that doesn't know what he's talking about, has been in the position for two months and can, can talk better than me. So, uh, and even though I, I can show after the fact, look, my plan worked, their plan didn't, Unless I am able to speak to the emotional side of things, I lose every time. That's been my problem. And um, unfortunately, I also am being unsuccessful with the whole Jordan Peterson angle of have a sword, be able to wield it, but keep it sheathed. I have a sharp edge, a very sharp edge. I try not to use it, but sometimes if I do, (laughs) I end up... Oh God, I, I I end up battling people that th- they're no match. And there's a little bit of a crater <laughs> when I'm done. And that doesn't really do much for the people around that particular crater who then see me as, yeah, so. Right, well, I, I know <laughs> you said you've looked into uh, Jordan Peterson stuff and the big five. I'd say you might wanna look into Myers-Briggs type indicator it's not as detailed as some of the other personality stuff, but in just four letters or in four dimensions, it can give you a really good um, understanding of psychology. Like even if it doesn't cover everything, it covers enough so that if you know those four letters, 
about a person, it at least gives you a start. And there are so many resources about MBTI um, on, on YouTube and stuff. And it's great if you're working with sales, it's good because all sorts of videos out there about MBTI will say, okay, there's this personality type and this is how they get along with that personality type, or this is why they have conflict with this personality type, or this is how they think differently than, than that personality type, you know? That could be very helpful. I haven't heard of that. I will definitely look it up because I feel like I've got this blind spot that I just can't see. It's like something I, I just can't figure out. And um, Well, you know, I'm one of the dimensions is thinker, thinker versus feeler. And um, I, I think that uh, it's, it's not necessarily a binary. Like it doesn't have to be 100% of one and 0% of the other. Like, as for me, I'm like 90% thinker, 10% feeler. So, so I have like some emotions, but they barely affect my thinking at all. And, um, but, but anyway, it sounds like maybe you also have a, a thinker personality and maybe that's why you're, you're not as interested in other people's emotions, or maybe you're able to regulate your own emotions. And so you're not as interested in um, putting up with other people when they're thinking with their emotions. Is that correct? It's, it's really hard to say. It's like the people working for me love working for me. Like we're, we're talking in, uh, to, to give you an idea, the last battle that I fought at my last job, I was literally fired. And here's the reason for playing a board game while off the clock, mm. non-productive activity while off the clock. And um, with this realization, I was working for a store that had 144 employees, okay? Now, it would be very unusual to have any more than five HR complaints at any given month. There was over 45 HR complaints in my defense while I was going through this. So the people that I work with, the people that work uh, for me, that just passion beyond, but the people above me don't see me. So it's hard to say. It's like, I understand the emotions of the people that I work with and the people that work below me, but it seems like there's some kind of a disconnect with the people that work above me in, in proving my value. Because I mean, I feel like if there was somebody working for me, that was very good at what they did. It makes my job easier. And of course I want them with me and I want to be able to promote them, but I'm not finding the same type of thinking with the people above me. And I have no freaking clue what, what I'm I, missing. What I, I'll chime in here. I think that, I think that what Matt is um, describing is valuable in a broader context, but I think that what you're actually describing is what I referenced earlier, which I, I think there's actually some hard physical limitations on your on your upward mobility and the position that you are in, right? So like if these people are are static in their positions, okay, if there's no expectation that they're going to move up in their chain of command, which it doesn't sound like there is, all that they aim to do is maintain their position, okay? <clears throat> and so the only way that you could move up from there is to impress the people above them to the point that they wanted to remove the people above you. And so like, that's, you know, I, I do think that what, what Matt is describing is 
something that's very valuable for your capacity to um, to interact with people and to gain upward mobility where the potential for upward mobility exists. But if I'm understanding you correctly, it, it doesn't seem to have been disputed the point that I raised before that the potential for upward mobility does not exist there. And so like it, it the, what you're describing is a situation where you actually you seem to be of the Im- impression that like you're you're doing what you should to move upward and it's not happening. And it's not I don't think that you're describing a situation that while while all of us have the capacity for improvement in our social interactions, clearly, it seems to me that these people, it's not in their interests to to advance you, that that they can only advance you at their expense. And so, like, wherever that is the case, the realpolitik of it is that they are not going to lose their position for you. Right. Like it as a matter of fact, like and that's going to affect their feelings about your performance, by the way. Right. So like for for them to act consistently with their own beliefs, it is in their interest to believe that you are not deserving of upward mobility. And so like their 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 beliefs will conform to that reality for themselves. Right. And so like, you know, they don't they don't have the capacity to move you up except at their expense. And so they're not they're going to form a belief system that is consistent with that necessity. Do you follow? Got it. I think you're on to something here. Um, okay, so how do they move up? How do I move up? Like, what do I do? I, I don't think it, it doesn't sound to me. I, I think that that is generally the case in many retail positions that like there's a hard physical limitation. Now, that is not got- ne- that is not necessarily the case in all of them, but it seems to me like that is the case in yours. Tony's time it in. Go ahead, Tony. So, like, I think there's actually a lot of ways you can take a role like this and actually make bank or uh, excel a lot you know it depends on really the brand uh your location and whatnot where you work but i think uh i've seen a lot of people go from let's say you know you could be a regular salesperson and transition into something more let's say like regional sales where you're actually uh getting your the brand's product into other stores or you're uh managing accounts there's also so many other different things in terms of just like ordering and merchandising. You know, if you're working retail, who's logging shit in, in the books, getting good at all the uh, operations of quantities in quantities out ordering, and then kind of going into a role like that. Like, I think the best thing I would say is that, you know, you could always kind of think about getting like the assistant manager and manager's position. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but like what you're saying, you run into that exact issue. I think like I have a coworker that was able to, you know, start as a regular sales guy over the counter. And, you know, one of the things he was able to do is see a market of customers uh, in particular groups and kind of interest groups and find a way to like do events and parties with them and promote the product and the brand. And he turned in from a regular sales guy to what was a completely new position that, he, that they created for him, a business development guy, right? So like there's ways that like you have to be hungry and I don't think it's just one of these things where you have to wait to get promoted. It's like you have to like literally do like you have to go super hard out of your way to get out of like the kind of retail rut. But it's definitely it's worth it could pay off a lot of the big time. And I think uh, you just got to be in that kind of mindset where you have to find a brand and you got to find a place to support you. You know, you could make well over six figures in a lot of these roles, even just working the floor at the right place. I think, um, go ahead, go ahead. Let me give you an, let me give you an example. I don't work for the company now and I'm not going to say which company it was, but it's a company that you all have heard of before. When COVID hit, we were scrambling along with everybody else. 
And I, I like technology a little bit. And the store manager walked up to me and said, look, I want you to head up a um, an internet team that can uh, run orders out to customers in the parking lot. And there, there was no structure at this point. And uh, I said, sure. I called it the meme team. And I started the meme team because memes make, make the dream work, right? Um, I picked the people in the store. I got a uh, contact in IT. I invented like uh, these QR codes for uh, positions in the store um, to keep track of the orders. I was communicating with the IT contacts that I had. A lot of my methods were codified across the entire company, which exists in multiple countries, including that QR code that can be scanned for locations, right? So um, the reason why I mentioned it, why I'm going into QR code and locations is we had a walk by our, a district manager that came into the store, saw my locations, my QR code. My locations were like A1, B1, B2, et cetera. Anyway, he comes in, sees my locations and say, you know what? That's not up to company standards. You need to change it. Nobody knew that I was the one that actually created the QR code system. And that uh, I sent it to the IT team that codified it across the company. And now I have my I, now I have the district manager of my store walking and telling me that I was incorrect. It's like, motherfucker, do you have any idea? It was me that created this to begin with. And, and my, even my store manager. He kept calling me into his office to fix his computer because he he liked the airplane symbol on his tablet and he kept pressing it. Airplane mode. All I had to do was go in there and shut off the damn airplane mode. And this was my store manager. It's like shit. Hey, I'm gonna remind uh, real quick. I I, uh, I got an S from Tony and I got an F and an S from you, Money Penny. It is surreal politics. I'll just invite you to join me in trying to be conscious of these things. Okay. Hey, not not to turn your show into like you know. What I, mean, I, I didn't get, I didn't catch that. Uh, uh, you're, you're cursing on surreal politics, and I'm yeah. asking you not to do that. He swears on um, radical agenda. Yeah, that's all, that's all I had. I just wanted to say that, like you know, when it comes to retail, you have to eat a lot of shit. Uh, but you Again? really gotta find. Oh, so, oh shit! My bad. Oops. I, I, I've always wanted to say this. <laughs> I've always wanted to say this. Hang on, hang on. I need to say this. I always want to say. It. I'm sorry for the F. There we go. And so, yeah, look, you know, uh, I think what, what Tony started to say there was you got to take a lot of stuff. And that's uh, that's generally the case in positions of employment, I would say, and probably more the case in retail and especially in sales. Right. You know, the in in sales, um, I have some I've never been particularly successful in sales myself, but I know a thing or two about it, having having worked around salespeople and um you know the 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 idea that you know the customer is always right is facially preposterous to most people but it is a uh it is a it is a phenomenon that you know you, you must operate within that framework in order to to work in sales um and of course you know when you want to um when you want to move up the the hiring manager is always right is kind of the the default assumption and so you know i think that um as a general matter, um, I think Tony knows a thing or two about sales. Let me just say that, that I, I know about this about him. And one of the things that's uh, 
you know, if, if you're ever in a position where you have a sales-like job and you're not happy with it, you know, trying to find a commission sales position is one of those ways that like you cannot help but discover your true capacity and be paid for what you're actually doing. Okay. So like looking for a commission sales position might be a really good, you know, lateral move for you. Okay. Uh, or for anybody, because if you're capable of selling, like you can write your own ticket, like anywhere. All right. And, um, and if you are a commission salesperson, like you go to the job and when you, when you first look at this, if you've never done commission sales before, like you might look at a commission sales salary and you might balk at it. But the idea behind a commission sales job is that like, you're going to make your money in sales commissions. And if you're, and if you're good at your job, like you cannot help, but make money. Go ahead, Tony. Yeah. Yeah. You're a hundred percent right. You know, it helps to have a product that you like. Um, and I, I forgot what the simple point I was going to make right before, uh, you, you were saying something, but I, I mean, I think the idea is that, uh, I'm sorry. I, what, you, can you just repeat exactly what you said before? If you remember, you're talking what, what about. What I'm saying uh, is that if you're in commission sales, you cannot help but be paid what you are worth. Like it, it, like it will happen whether you like it or not. Like if you're going out, you're making sales. You know, you're going to make commissions. And if you're not making sales, then you're going to quickly find out that you're not good at sales. You know, and that's going to be reflected in your in your pay. And you're going to have to, you know, either get better at sales or or find a job where sales are not part of your requirement. Um, yeah. Hundred percent. Sorry, you, you know, I, I think it's important to really understand that uh, with with sales, it's sort of like there's always a trade-off. You got to be able to figure, you know, different things work on different people. Um, you know, so I guess maybe an extreme example of this would be you see somebody who's wearing a Democrat T-shirt and maybe. They like you more if you say that you voted Democrat and you see somebody with a Republican T-shirt um, and they like you more if you say you voted Republican. Of course, there are plenty of other ways. And it's not always just about um, kissing rear ends, so to speak. But um, but yeah, I think psychology is just so useful. I, I don't have a job in sales. I have a job on online teaching English. But but still, I, I think that just with anything, you get so much farther in life when you study psychology. I think that there's uh, that, that if you study sales, you will you'll be studying like behavioral psychologists. Like you you if you study sales, you're going to be told to read Robert Cialdini, as I've as I've brought him up many times before. Um, it, so you're going to be studying Robert Cialdini. I should mention is a behavioral psychologist. Okay, and so like. Um, if you're stu if you're studying sales literature, you are studying psychology. There's there's no two ways about it. Um, and people are basically taking, you know, that literature and adapting it to they're they're trying to refine it for sales purposes. But it's fundamentally, you know, it, it's psychology, you know, especially um, Cialdini's book um, Influence, which I've talked about here. But perhaps even the better example is the is the. He has he has more than two books out, but the second major book is Persuasion, and he talks about basically like the idea is like setting the stage to be influential. And he gives as one example of it, he's like um, he would he would ha he had talked about this salesman who was like doing you know um, not necessarily I don't know if it was door to door sales, but outside sales in any case. So you go, he go to a customer's home, and he had this he basically had this trick where he would he would say oh. Um, you know, I left this thing. He would intentionally leave something in the car that was a part of the presentation. And he would say, oh, can I go get this 
from my car and let myself back in. And the the people would generally be inclined to allow him to do that, right? And and the idea behind it was, you know, the psychology of that is that, you know, somebody who lets themselves into your house is somebody that you trust, right? And and he, you know, reported some, you know, spectacular increase in his sales number after after he started performing this, you know, fundamentally deceptive task. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you're, and I suppose like, um, the sales literature that I have read doesn't talk a great deal about the personality types thing. Um, but I think that, um, that is certainly like, it's, it's a salient point. And certainly uh, I wish that, you know, I've tried to reach out to him a couple of times. It's sad that I don't talk to Eddie Dunn anymore. Those of you have been following me long enough, you've, you've heard about Eddie that like, you know, when I started podcasting, it was, it was called, well, I actually did something before some garbage podcast, but it was hardly listened to. Nobody really knew anything about it. But the the predecessor, the immediate predecessor to um, Radical Agenda was called Some Garbage Podcast. And it was started in in the office of this basically marketing company. And, and the guy who my partner and my podcast partner was a guy by the name of Eddie. And Eddie was like a cold call salesman. OK, now he had like people who would basically, what he said, smile and dial, he'd get them leads and they would call people and 90% of them would just hang up, you know, but if they could speak to the person for a couple of minutes and, and get them like, okay, would you be interested in talking to, you know, our, our, uh, our lead guy? And then they, they'd put him on the phone with, they put them on the phone with Eddie and like Eddie would go and, you know, he would, he would inform himself of who he was about to speak to. And, then he would perform. I mean, it was this whole, like, I mean, Eddie was, you know, one of the most talented people I've ever met in that, like he would, he would get on the phone with these people and, you know, what, what he's, I don't want to, I don't want to describe what he does as dishonest because he, he was very careful not to lie because he didn't want to get sued. <laughs> but like, you know, he, he, and he understood, you know, how, how you get sued and how you not get sued. Right. And so, you know, he would understand what these people wanted and he would and he would give it to them. And and, you know, a lot of what informs uh, a lot of the stuff I talk about today is actually I learned from Eddie, which is that like, you know, somebody doesn't buy. I mean, it, it, the the quality of the product is not irrelevant. Right. But like that's not fundamentally like what people are buying. OK, when you're when you're in direct sales, when you're talking to somebody, they're they're buying the salesman in large part. And so, like, you know, you, your capacity to connect with these people is tremendously important. And you can only talk to people within the within the frame of their own experience. And if you're outside of their experience or you're the other or you're the enemy, then like you can't sell them anything. And, you know, that that definitely has relevance in politics as well. And so, you know, understanding where people are at is, you know, a really important component of that. And uh, psychology is, you know, fundamentally what what creates that frame of reference, you know. One other thing I think is uh, worth to give is just as general advice when it comes to like sales, but definitely, like you said, you know, no commission. It's basically a customer service job. You know, you need a commission. And I think that's really the way to go about it and getting one where I think the easiest way to do it is there's jobs where you have to cold call people and really uh, hustle to make sales and to make money. And some of those jobs are the most lucrative, you know, the people that actually get to the uh, pound the phones or pound the people and actually do the work will make bank. And if they're good at it, like, for example, I used to work for Hilton and it was in the timeshare division where my job was to stand in the lobby and get people on a timeshare presentation. Right. So they have to take time out of their vacation or business trip to go on a 90 minute presentation. And we would try to bribe them with, you know, here's a $200 uh, gift card, visa gift card, here's Broadway tickets. Right. 
And I tell you, I did this job for the probationary period and I probably booked five people working full time in all that time. Mind you, there was a really hot, a decently hot girl that was in the next class for me and she was setting about five or six a day. Uh, this chick was making about 10 grand a day, uh, just for reference of how much money that actually was. So like you have to understand, like th there's some jobs that if you're actually good at hustling, like you'll make bank. And what I like is I'm a fairly hands-off kind of guy. You can find jobs where the product sells itself and you just basically have to show up, smile, tell people about it. And they want to buy it from you regardless. Like at the end of the day, they want that product. And I think that's the way to go about it. You know, you find a brand where you could stand at Gucci. Like I had a friend that worked at Gucci. She stood in Bloomingdale's all day and she made over a hundred grand a year just selling to people that want to buy clutches and purses. Like just to put it out there, uh, it, there, there are ways to do it where you don't even have to be aggressive. You just got to find the right gig. Some of them are really nice. Yes, I, I would agree. Um, so, um, no, Chris, you are a great salesman. Even if you don't know it, the customer does not know what they want. The salesman helps to inform Customers don't like to be sold. They like to buy. A good salesman just informs and lets the customer decide. Now, I, I would I would encourage you, if you want upward mobility, to discard that that idea that the that the the salesman just informs. The salesman, what he's informing the customer of is their desire to buy. And and like and it's there's there's almost a coercive element to it if, if once you reach a certain level of sales, okay? Like it it it, it borders on coercive in that the, the salesman is exercising a a degree of power um over the they're 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 using techniques, right? They're they're mechanics, they're compliance technicians, okay? And that is fundamentally like you know, if you reach a certain level of sales, that's that's really something. Now, you know, Tony's describing a situation where, like, you have a product that people want to buy, and great. And and in those instances, yeah, like, you know, you're just like, oh, let me help you make an informed decision. Of course, yeah, th that exists. But I'll tell you something. Like he was mentioning, like cold call selling. Okay, if you can, if you can do cold call sales, like you can do anything. Like nobody can stop you if you could call people on the phone, and and connect with them. In that way, like there's a, it's an extremely powerful position to be in if you if you develop that capacity. And like, like I said, Eddie was the best example of this. But like, you know, he knew all these people who are some of them who are in like disreputable industries. Frankly, that like they would they would sell people some things that sometimes were not in their best interest. Okay, and like, you know, it's fundamentally that like they're 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 you're you're controlling these people and. If you realize that, then you know it can lead to dark places. If you're if you don't have like a, a moral code, right? Um, I, I'm not saying that Eddie lacked the moral code. Eddie was you know trying to provide them with a with a good service, and we meant to do that. But we knew people, you know, in the course of this that that were not of that mindset. And so, like, if you understand if you understand that about sales, and you, and then uh, like that actually informs you a lot about psychology. That like you know. It's like once you're if you understand how people are thinking and you're able to interact with them on on the level of a compliance technician, like what what you're doing is it borders on mind control. Right. It's I have this whole thing. One of these things that I these one of these book and audio collections, audio book collections that I have is called dark psychology. And so, like, you know, it's like the idea is mind control. And so, you know, I wouldn't want to encourage people to, you know, do dark and coercive things to people, but you know, that's, that's an element, that's an element of the profession. 
And so like when you call people on the phone and and you get them on the phone and like you can, you know, start if you can connect with them and make that connection and get them to do things, you know, it's it's a very powerful thing indeed is I guess the the thing I that I mean to convey and like it, and it provides <clears throat> like limitless upload mobility. If you can go and say to some other hiring manager, okay, like if you let's say you leave your job tomorrow and you go work for some place that's like cold call sales, okay, and you go work there for six months and you're and you're competent at cold call sales and then you go to Gucci or you know some place that has a very hot selling product and you say, well, I've been doing cold call sales and I've been you know making this much money or whatever. Any any manager in a sales, any manager in a sales job, is going to understand what cold call selling is, and they're going to say, "Well, if this person can call up a stranger on the phone and sell to them, then they're going to have no problem selling my desirable product in my store." So yeah, I better get this person in here right now before somebody snatches them up, you know. And so I think that um, doing cold call selling is a very uncomfortable thing to do, in the, especially in the beginning. And not, it's not for everybody, but, you know, I, I would go so far as to say that, you know, it's a, if it's a skill that if you can master, you can really do, you can do really do amazing things. And so, um, let's, it, I, I know that, uh, I don't know. Do you want to, I know Pat had something that I talked to him about before the show. Do you want to get into that, Pat? Uh, hey Chris, yeah, uh, you you broke up. I think I think you said my name. Yeah. I didn't hear what so you, asked so me, I, you and I spoke uh, before the show. You had a point that uh, you brought up, and I and I said uh, it would be better done this evening on the on the show. Do you want to get into that or? Yeah. So um, the country singer Aldine, he came out with a song that's made a little bit of controversy. He's basically talking about, um, you know, the the gist of the song was that Antifa and BLM can't pull what they pull in the cities and small towns. Um, and the implication was that we'll, you know, we'll commit violence on you if you try to do that. And it's, it's really upset the mainstream. Um, and I think the gut reaction, like when right-wingers, generally speaking, hear that is like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, like we're going we're gonna to shoot you if you come into my small town and you try to disrupt it with your, your Antifa left-wing stuff. And I, you know, I, I, I enjoy that as well. Like I, I'm, I read the lyrics and I hear it. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool. But like, it doesn't really reflect reality. And I feel like it's a message that you can look at it as almost dangerous because it kind of puts things into people's heads. It's like, it's like a dopamine rush. Like you hear that and then you almost feel like you don't have to participate in politics. Cause you're like, Oh, well, the small towns are good. Like Antifa is not going to come around my town and cause any problems. So like, I'm fine. Um, and so I was kind of like going back and forth on how I should feel about this and what, what utility it has, like politically speaking for us, like what, you know, how do we approach this? Do we like cheer it on and like hope that it's like, you know, spread far and wide, like this is great. Or should we say like, you know, he's really missing the point and he's putting a message out there that's kind of giving people false ideas of how things work. Um, I'll, I'll let you respond to that before I go on. Yeah. Let me, let me just read the first verse in the chorus. Just for those of you who haven't heard the song, it's Jason Altine. The, the song title is try that in a small town. The first, the first verse in the chorus go like this. Sucker punch somebody on a sidewalk, carjack an old lady at a red light, pull a gun on the owner of a liquor store. You think that's cool? Well, act a fool if you like. Cuss out a cop, spit in his face, stomp on the flag and light it up. Yeah, you think you're tough. Well, try that in a small town. See how far you make it down the road. 
Around here, we take care of our own. You cross that line, it won't take long for you to find out. I recommend you don't. Try that in a small town. And so that's an example, sort of the the idea here that like, okay, you know, you you go out and you do these things that we in our small town are witnessing on the news, you city dwellers doing. Uh, you try to do that around here and it's going to turn out badly for you. And of course, um, uh, this has turned out badly for a couple of guys in a small town or two who go out and try to dispense justice on their own, most notably the guys who um, tried to stop a guy by the name of, I think his name was Armed Robbery, a uh, guy by the name of Armed Robbery got <laughs> shot. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It might have been, uh, oh, Ahmad Arbery. Okay. And so they, uh, you know, they suspected Mr. Robbery of, uh, of burglarizing a home, and so they went out to stop him with their shotguns. And uh, Mr. Robbery ended up dead in the process. And, and they went on trial and said that they were, you know, trying to affect a citizen's arrest, essentially. And they ended up spending the rest of their lives in prison, I think, is the outcome of that. And uh, if they are ever getting out of prison, which I'm not sure, I, I think they're not. But if they are, they're going to be very old when it happens in any case. And so, <clears throat> um, you know, these sort of like, you know, vigilante fantasies, if you will, are are dangerous to nurse, I would say. But I think there's also, I think that, I think that what he's talking about is, is real in the sense that like, you know, if you live in a big city, like you can go out and do like ridiculous, degenerate, you know, disreputable things. And like the people in your city won't necessarily know, like the people you could live in a building where people are stacked up on top of each other and people have fundamentally no clue what each other are doing. And like that actually does not work in a small town where like people go to church together and expect to know what their neighbors are doing. And so I, I do think that it reflects reality to, to an extent that like if, you know, if you live in a small town and you're basically running around, you know, throwing Molotov cocktails at people and beating people up for their politics, like you actually won't be able to get along in a small town, whether or not, you know, you end up like Mr. R Mr. Robbery, you know. And so I, I don't know that it I don't know that necessarily fails to reflect, you know, the actual situation. But I would say that I think the phenomenon that you're describing is that the people in the small town might be underestimating the danger of what they're witnessing on television in that the, the, the problem that is brewing in these cities is going to affect them in a, in a fashion that, you know, a couple of guys with a shotgun and a pickup truck are not going to be able to solve. And I, I think that that is a I think that that is a worthwhile observation for sure, um, and that you know that they would do well to take note of that. Uh, I don't know off the top of my head um, that I have a a great deal of advice for them other than to participate in politics. But I also am under the impression that they do. Uh, I don't I don't know that I don't know that many people who are you know I, I mean I. The people who live in these places tend to elect, you know, at, at least conservative politicians. And I understand that some people have um, appropriate concerns about conservatives, but they are at least not voting Democrat. And so that is, you know, in my book, a, a superior state of affairs for sure. Well, you, you know, Chris, one one thing is I, I think it depends with this so-called vigilantism. I think it depends if the person is white, you know, like. The Ahmed Aubrey situation, uh, the, the guy who died was black. And in the, um, 
in the case of um, Rittenhouse, Kyle Rittenhouse, the people he shot were either white or white passing. So I, I think, I, I think that you know when people protect their neighborhoods, I think they kind of have to be selective. It's like, well, if if you're white, maybe we have a little bit more ability to protect our neighborhoods and maybe we can get away with it, but then, and maybe we get uh, the jury to let us off. But if we have to protect our neighborhood from black people, it's like, no, no, just, we got to stay home. We got to let it happen. Well, there's a, cu- there's a couple of things to that. One is that like, look, the situation with armed robbery was like, you know, I actually don't think that those guys necessarily acted so prudently, right? Like, okay, you know, what, what did they have in their heads that like, okay, I'm going to go out and I'm going to affect a citizen's arrest with a firearm. Like, you know, typically speaking, when you understand the laws of self-defense, like as a carry permit holder, I had to understand this, not only in my state of New Hampshire, but like when I would travel, I'd, I'd read the self-defense laws of the places where I went, not just, not just the, the laws of like carrying the firearm, but like, what are the consequences of using it? Right. And so, so like, there's no place where you can go out and like apprehend a criminal and kill him. There, like that's actually not a real thing, you know. Like you can't you can't go and pursue people and then they end up dead with your firearm. And so, like, I have sympathy well, uh, for those guys. This, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Th- this is my point. I mean, th- these guys were listening to too many Aldine songs. You know, like they thought that that was totally fine and they thought they were just going to roll up on this guy, put a shotgun on him, he was going to stand there, and the cops are going to come. And they're not aware of reality. And I mean, what the what the last person that interjected is getting at is it's true. Like race is a, is a salient factor. And they're not being given that message because they're not experiencing it on a day-to-day basis. And that's like why I kind of feel like there's a problem with this, like getting excited about, you know, the new country song that, you know, has racial undertones, but doesn't specify the point. And, you know, the right wing in general always has this problem where like we, we have this assumption that we're the purveyors of violence and like we're gonna once it gets to the point of violence we're just gonna win and you know we're gonna shoot everybody because we have the guns and they don't and it's first off it's not even accurate like the leftists are probably more active with guns than the right-wing groups are i mean like we're afraid to use guns i mean they have gun clubs in the left-wing scene that are very active and i'm sure that they know how to use firearms so like this idea that we're we're incapable of even winning on that field is like you know we could argue about that but like it's just this like this false reality where you hear this song, you see this this video that's like really cool looking and you think like, yeah, we're the badasses. They're not going to come here and try that. And then it's like almost like watching pornography where you don't have to get with a woman then because now you've seen this and you feel like you're you're, you know, everything's fine. And that that's kind of the point I'm getting at. I think that's the problem. There's not enough true information there. It's it's, you know, checking all these like assumption boxes that are not even accurate. And it's it's getting by without actually having to deal with the problems. Yeah, I mean, you know, I uh, I think that if people are, you know, getting their information from music videos that they could be led astray, let's say, I, I would hope that, and I understand that the phenomenon exists, that some people, you know, you know, take their real world information from the world of entertainment and that has, um, that has dangerous effects on a more general level. You know, I have not, my, for me personally, 
I only I watched this music video once. You sent it to me. I've been watching them play it all over the place on Fox News today. I've been I haven't been listening to the coverage, but I've been I've had the TV on mute all day. So like I see this video playing, and I hear that he's been like canceled from you know country music TV or whatever, and you know the controversy is basically like, oh my God, how dare you suggest that you would you know use force against these people? And right before the show today, it was kind of funny. Like Jesse Waters played it, and Jesse Waters then took like. Okay, so there's all this controversy about him doing this. Okay, let's look at what's going on in rap videos. <laughs> and like it was this it was this montage of them, you know, like with the guns like you know, like I mean just crazy looking people with like firearms and like they like them they're acting out robberies and drug deals and killing people like it's crazy what I think like I was like I haven't what is this BET what am I looking at? And so, you know, it, it, it was a it was a it was an interesting study in contrast. And of course, you know, I, I would say that, you know, rap music and, and rap music videos, I, I think that they are not only a reflection of the culture in those communities, but they are, you know, they there is a feedback loop involved, right? That, you know, there's a reflection and then the reflection in, informs the future actions, which create, you know, more troubles to reflect upon. And of course, uh, you know, if you're somebody who you know, is, uh, you know, looking at country music in the way that some young inner city folks look at rap music, then, you know, you could find yourself in some trouble. But again, like if you listen to country music, like, you know, I don't know, like the idea that you're going to, you know, start drinking as a consequence of your wife leaving and and somehow that's going to, uh, I don't know, I'm using a stupid stereotype. You know, I I think that if, if there's plenty in music that could lead a man astray, let's say. And I don't know that I'm very worried about this this music video in particular. Um, what do you get when you play a country song backwards? He stops drinking, his wife comes back, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, Chris. So, yeah. like, it, it's not like we're we're ta- we're discussing we're discussing this this video because it's like in the news. But it's not just music videos. I mean, it's it's the political party. Like when Donald Trump tells you to come out to January sixth because. You know, they're stealing the election from me. We need to overthrow the government and people storm into the Capitol. Like it's a general cultural problem on the right in rural spaces in middle America. Like there's this general perception and it's not it happens to be in this case expressed through a music video. But like where did Jason Aldean get the idea to write this song and make this video? I mean, like this is like a general cultural zeitgeist for these people that does not reflect reality and can get you in trouble if you act on it. And if you don't act on it, then you're just politically impotent. And that's kind of like, I guess what I'm getting at. I think so. And like the, the broader phenomenon of unrealistic ideas about the use of force in politics, I I think is very salient. Um, It's something that I've had to, you know, think a great deal about personally because I have, uh, I have advocated a lot of that. Right. And so like, you know, people having those ideas, and they're not, shall we say, put into the right frame of reference or the right, or they're not compartmentalized appropriately is, is dangerous as a general matter. I mean, you know, in, uh, in what might be described as extreme right circles, you know, there were, you know, there were fantasies pervading in some circles about, you know, suicide missions, mass shooting, Dylan Roof, you know, Robert Bauer stuff, right? And like, there was a period of time, so you guys will remember this, I'm sure, like from like basically October of 2018, you know, right up until 2020, 
Like there was like a whole bunch of mass shootings that happened in a very, you know, short space of time. And I think that that was largely responsible. Like that phenomenon that I'm describing of like the, the, like there's no hope go out and, you know, get yourself killed in a mass shooting was actually like a pretty pervasive idea on the alt-right. And the, like the consequences of that were very evident and very negative. And, you know, I've had to think a lot about that to the, to, to the extent that I participated in it, frankly. Um, and so like, well, uh, go Chris, ahead. yeah. As bad as that, as bad as that is, um, there's, there's at least a reflective logic in that thought process where, um, the political process is not working. Therefore I'm going to do violence and I'm not expecting it to like change anything. And that's bad. But these people like, uh, the, the McMichaels in the Aubrey case, like they thought that they were acting within the system's like, uh, acceptance. Like they thought that they were doing what they should be doing. And that's honestly worse because they they have no clue why they ended up in prison. I'm and frankly not sure that's, that's the case. Have no idea. I, I actually don't believe right. that. Well, I, I mean, I, I will agree to disagree on that. Well, let me let me elaborate on why I why I disbelieve it. Okay, like you know, I, I think that, and and to the extent that they did, it was that they allowed themselves to believe something preposterous because they were inclined to believe this preposterous thing. Okay, like. I, and by the way, you mentioned earlier that Donald Trump said, show up and let's overthrow the government. I, I recall his words being, you know, in some contrast to that. But I understand that one might draw the implication. And I and I so I take your point. But, you know, explicitly stated that that was not what he said. And so, like, you know, there's a lot of, shall we say, um, fetishizing the American Revolution goes on in conservative circles. OK, that like, OK, you know, um, uh, you always see this meme on conservative social media. Oh, the uh, the 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 founders didn't do X, Y, Z. They shot people. Right. Like that's that's one of those things. And and so, you know, they they fetishize this. And I think that that actually has some some propriety. I, I don't think that that's entirely out of place. I think that that is the, the, you know, that's the hard physical limit that a government can eventually reach. I touched upon this in the opening monologue today, like in the most extreme example, you know, the, the people will take up arms against the government. Now, like I also said that we should all work to prevent that outcome because it's it's actually very undesirable. But, you know, like there 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 is a conceivable point in time at which it, it becomes desirable. And I think that you know, it's not it's not worthless to keep that that thing in people's heads. I, I think that there's a value to that, but uh, I don't know precisely how to manage this because it obviously has the potential to to get completely out of hand and, and cause a, a great deal of, you know, unwarranted trouble, I'd say. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the McMichaels called the police. They didn't try to hide the body. They didn't go out and shoot him and try to bury him. They called the police. They thought that they were defending their neighborhood. And, you know, whatever got into their head that made them think that it was three different guys that were partaking in that event. And they they trusted that if they called the cops and told them what happened, they were going to be treated fairly. And they did, they had no idea what was coming to them. And that's what I'm getting at. Like, these people, they're missing information that's important. I think the the person that spoke before me was getting at the point, which is that their race is the salient point. If it had been uh, a white guy that had broken into the construction site and they shot him with a shotgun, that would have been fine. They probably would have been let off. And that's why initially the, the local police did not charge them because the, legally they were fine. 
and then the federal government stepped in. Well, wow. and th- this is the issue that I'm getting at. And, and these people, like like January sixth, like whether Donald Trump said specifically storm the Capitol to overthrow the government or not, he got people riled up. He told them that the election was stolen. He brought them to the place, and then he didn't show up. And these people thought that they they did not expect that they were going to be getting in trouble for this because they would have been live streaming it if they did. And this is this has been a shock to their system. Hopefully, they're learning lessons from it. But the idea that they thought that they were doing something like that was not acceptable. Like I don't believe that. Uh, you know, th- their actions I think prove otherwise. Well, I, I would say uh, real quick. I, I understand Matt wants to chime in, but you know, look, if you drop a body, <laughs> even especially if you're if you think that uh, you might be found guilty. Uh, you're going to want to get ahead of that and call the cops. Like if you if you shoot somebody in the middle of the street and you think that you might go to prison for it, like you're either you're going to do one of two things. You're going to run like hell and and, and get out of the jurisdiction or you're going to call the cops. And so like, well, they, like they uh, called uh, them before uh, they shot him. a guilty they, the, the uh, call was made before when they were chasing him. A guilty mind is not prohibitive of interactions with law enforcement, as the jury was repeatedly minded, <laughs> reminded in a couple of my trials. Um, and so like, you know, like a guilty mind will interact with law enforcement. That's actually not, it's actually not prohibitive. Yeah, that, that's totally true, Chris, but they called them on the chase. They called them when the guy ran down the block and they got the pickup truck with the shotgun. That's when they made the phone call. And they had actually called the police a week before that for the break-in. So they thought there's a guy breaking into our neighborhood. We have the right to do a citizen's arrest. We're going to get him with a, with a rifle or a shotgun. Like that was their thought process. Again, if you're planning on doing something wrong or you think something that you're doing is not up to stuff, you're not calling the cops before you do it. So, I mean, like, I I get what you're saying and you're not wrong, but the the call was made before he was killed. Now, if I understand correctly, you said the federal government stepped in and I do understand that they were federally tried, but they were tried in their in their state jurisdiction. Right. They they were actually convicted there first. Not, Not not initially. They were let go first, and then when the media pressure built up, I forget how much time it passed before the the local prosecutors had brought a charge. But initially, they were let go and, and deemed to not be uh, requiring charges. And I'll look that up to get you, you know, this specific time frame. But it was like months where they had gone free because they had said you were acting in self defense and you were defending your your property. I understand. And well, as a matter of fact, they were defending the property of others, which is another you know questionable thing. But you know, I, I think that I, I, your your point is not uh, your point is not lost on me. I think that some of the finer points of it we might disagree on, but I, I think that you're you're largely correct in that you know people sh- should not entertain these ideas that you know they can go take these matters into their own hands. I, I think that that part is certainly salient to anything that we're going to be discussing. That like you know. Even if you believe that you are in the right, and even if you actually do happen to be legally correct, that like you could still end up in trouble, and that you could be perfectly in line with the laws of your local jurisdiction, and the federal government could come in and destroy you. Or you could be perfectly in line with all of your criminal laws, and then you could get sued and have your life ruined, you know, by a lower standard of evidence. Um, you, you, uh, you know, there was an incident, I recently had to comment on something about, you know, Ross Ulbricht, right? Um, Ross Ulbricht ran the Silk Road, the drug market, and he was convicted on a number of charges. And he was charged with he was he, the, the government opted not to charge him with these accusations that he hired a hitman to kill a couple of people. OK, and so like he, he went to trial basically on these drug charges and the, and the court gave him a life sentence and they gave him a life sentence on the basis of the fact that he hired hitmen. But the, the government didn't charge him with that and never thus had to prove it beyond the, beyond a reasonable doubt that he, in fact, did this. And the, and the federal system 
Like you can be charged for, you could be sentenced based on uncharged or even acquitted conduct, which is like the subject of, you know, his many appeals um, in his case. And so like, you know, and, and, and the standard of evidence when they bring it up at sentencing is not beyond a reasonable doubt. It's preponderance of the evidence, which is the same thing as in a civil trial, which is basically, you know, you win, you win, you know, uh, six out of 10 coin tosses. That's the standard of evidence essentially. So like, you know, it's it's dangerous in the extreme to find yourself in a violent conflict no matter what the legal justification is and like you, you really you really have to you have to avoid that with all diligence matt you want to chime in on uh on on this subject yeah well with january 6th i'm i'm not so sure that that actually um went badly for us. And the reason I say I don't think it went badly for us is, you know, we we have a situation where I guess five people died. There was Ashley Babbitt, um, Brian Sicknick, and then three other less notable people. I think the other three people, they all died of health conditions. Um, Someone committed one, suicide in the wake of the thing. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, there were more than that, more than the five I mentioned. I, I don't know. I don't know if the people that I'm talking about, when when the Democrats say that multiple law enforcement officers died, they're talking about cops who committed suicide months later. Now, if there were, I, I don't know how many people other than Ashley Babbitt and Brian Sicknick died immediately within the way of thing. I know one person was like, um, I don't know if they died of an uh, an opi. Uh, I'm sorry, an amphetamine overdose, or they had complications from. Amphetamine toxicity is something that stands out in my mind. But I know that when the Democrats talk about their inflated death statistics and they say multiple police officers died, what they're actually talking about is in the months following January 6th, law enforcement officers who were there committed suicide. And and that's how they're it's part of their fake narrative about the armed overthrow of the government. It's silly. Right. Well, I think one thing that really helped us was um, that because Ashley Babbitt was shot dead with a situation where there was very little, or I think there was very little legal or moral justification for it, I think that helped to portray our side as more soft, you know, 14 years in the Air Force, um, you know, unarmed mother, etc. The other thing is that, you know, Brian Sicknick, um, it's sort of questionable if the right-wing people there um, committed what could be called murder or if it was simple assault or, you know, negligent homicide or whatever. But I think it would have been a lot worse for us if somebody shot him because then they could clearly say there was intent to kill and he was killed. Um, but yeah, I, mean, I don't I think, think that- like my understanding of it, the guys who, you know, they, they started off saying that they bashed his head open with a fire extinguisher or something. And then like, it came out later that Brian Sicknick actually like sometime after the events, after he had talked to people about the events and said he was fine, then he had a stroke. The people who allegedly assaulted Brian Sicknick, my understanding have been charged with misdemeanor assault. They have not been charged with his death. And like, you know, by considering the standards that, that they have gone on to charge people with offenses. I would say that the charging decision in and of itself is, is very telling about the government's perception of the death of Brian Sicknick. Right. I mean, I think that it could have gone so much worse. You know, uh, all it would have taken, all it would have taken um, would be either for a Trump supporter or for a Fed pretending to be a Trump supporter 
to detonate a bomb. And even if it didn't kill anybody, it would still make the right look incredibly bad. Oh, yeah. Um, but I mean, what, what is your perception of January 6th? Do you think that that was a huge loss for us or a win or sort of like just 50-50? Well, you know, I think that, um, so for a lot of reasons, I'm going to decline to answer the question in the terms that you have put it. Uh, and it, it would be a rhetorical error for me to describe it as a success. So what I will say instead of that is that you know we have no choice but to get what get what we can from the situations with which we are met and what what we are met with as a consequence of this is that since the since the government has completely overreacted to this entirely undesirable situation um it has caused people who who had one perception to have their perceptions changed so substantially that they become open to new ideas. Okay. So like they've had their paradigms shattered. Okay. I've talked about this before in a context of like, you know, like part of what led me here was like getting into like the whole nine 11 truth thing and like, you know, getting into the idea, whatever it's merit that like the government would kill its own citizens to start a war, you know, completely shattered my frame of reference about what the government is like the fundamental, you know, physics of our society were shattered. I no longer believed what I believed before. And I was like, well, what, what is actually the nature of society and what is everything about me about? And and I had to completely reevaluate all of that. Now, you know, I'm not one of these people who's like, oh, you know, no plane hit the Pentagon or whatever. like, you know, there's silly things that are associated with 9-11 truth movement. I'm not co-signing all of that. I'm just giving the example of like, you know, when people have their frame of reference so radically altered like they become open to suggestion. And that's, that is a good thing indeed for us, I, I would say. And so like when we're met with these circumstances, the only prudent thing to do is to make them wins. Okay. Like it doesn't matter if it is objectively a win or a loss. The only thing that a prudent political actor can do is make a win out of it. Uh, and so like, that is the, that's the task for us, I would say. And, and there's substantial opportunity there in that like, you know, especially as it relates to the August 12th situation that like, you know, they were all like, oh, you know, a bunch of Nazis went and go hurt some innocent people. And we believe that because that's our frame of reference. And then like they realize that like the media is a bunch of lying crooks that call you racist when they when they want to harm you. You know, th that presents an opportunity to sort of like redeem this very important historical moment. And so, you know, that's that's part of what I perceive our task to be. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I basically agree. It's just, um, you know, I, I think that the, the way January 6th turned out, it was like a minor provocation by the right led to a massive provocation, uh, a massive action by the left. And I think that overstretch, um, you know, uh, worked to, um, you know, further, um, I'm trying to think of how to say this, uh, further take people who were, shall we say, on the center right and move them a bit farther right. Although, of course, again, will there be negative consequences down the road? Sure, there could be. And I think that some of the, some of the, um, shall we say, farthest right people, whether they're actually, whether they're actually alt-right or if they're just, you know, very strong partisan Republicans. I think regardless, those people will be hard for us to control. 
even if we tell them not to engage in vigilantism, I think that just by the nature of some of them not being so bright, it it would be easy for the establishment to bait them into that sort of thing. I think I think that it's already evident in that, like, you know, I think there's been some cases of that have already happened. And so, like, this happened with the alt-right, too. OK, so, like, you know, I, I think I don't like the... It, it, this phrase approximates the point that I'm trying to make, but it's not, it's not, it's not, it doesn't perfectly do it. Somebody has said at some point that so-and-so got red pill too fast. Okay. And like what happened, it was, it described a real phenomenon in which like somebody has their frame of reference shattered and then like their mind goes to dark places and they, and they do things that are fundamentally destructive. And so like, like that's a real thing. Okay. So like if you take somebody who has like, you know, if you have, if somebody has religious views, say, and then they lose their religious belief. And like, there's not, and there's not like a constructive, you know, sort of backstop to that, that can lead them to very dark places, right? So like, if you think that the reason that you don't cheat on your wife and do drugs is because God is watching, and then you don't believe that God is watching anymore, you might be inclined to go cheat on your wife and do drugs. And like, if you believe that, you know, like the government is, if you believe that the government is like a, a, a just institution, and then you become, then you become convinced that it is not, and you have these ideas that like w- what 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 citizens do to an unjust government is violently overthrow it, then you know then that can obviously lead you towards you know very dark places. And and there are actors within the government who will go and feed that hysteria in order to justify their positions and go out and take people into custody and 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 crush political movements that they find inconvenient. And so that's a real thing. And I and by the way, I think it's inevitable. I think it's already happened. I think it's going to happen again. And like it's something that's sort of like we need to be conscious of going forward. So like, you know, like when, when you see people doing those things or, or advocating those ideas, like the, the prudent thing to do, in my opinion, is to, if, if it's on in an online setting, the prudent thing to do is, you know, to exercise some effort to, you know, to talk that person down. And like, if, if somebody like that, you know, shows up to your, your gathering or something like that, you know, to distance yourself from that person very rapidly, because, they're a threat to what you're doing. And like, that's unfortunate because I think that, you know, I think that a lot of really well-intentioned people will go down those paths, right? Because like, if you, you know, if you, if you believe that you have, you know, purposes that are more important than your own life, that's actually like in my book, a very important value. Right. And so like, it's like, I don't think that it's a good thing to wall those people off permanently, partly on my own experience. You know, I've, I've, I've said these things, right. But like, you know, people who believe that they have purposes that are more important than their own life are like actually very valuable. And that like, if you could teach them, it's better that you live for your cause than that you die for it, essentially, that like, you know, those people can be very valuable, but like you, you have to guard, you have to guard your purpose first. And so like, that's going to happen. It's already happened. It's, it's going to happen again. And so, you know, our, our task in my view is to like, just be conscious of that. And, and, you know, harness the energy to the extent that it can be harnessed and to the extent that it cannot to protect ourselves from its dangers is i guess my my response money penny says that she wanted to respond to this go ahead dear your mic is still there you go the whole january 6th thing just bothers me it's like um it's like reading a history book that's not correct and you're reading about the Boston Tea Party or something and uh, the people get 
um, overwhelmed by the fact that they're doing something wrong. So they don't dump the tea in the harbor and it doesn't happen. And it just, it all falls flat. There are so many high emotions and I don't think anybody can claim that if Donald Trump wanted to cross the Rubicon, that was the time and he could have done it and he could have had the support. And even if it failed or succeeded, it would have been in the history books, but it just, it, it, it fell flat. Like, and, and, and now everybody pretends like it's something that it wasn't on both sides, but I feel like it was a loss of nerves for sure. And uh, now what the hell are we supposed to do? I think that, um, you know, let me try to choose my words very carefully here. There's an argument to be made that some portion of what happened was the predictable consequence of the things that Donald Trump said. Okay. If, and the point that they kept bringing this up at the, you know, at the January 6th hearings, like, if you're saying that the election was rigged and has been stolen, then the basically the Democrats are saying, well, the appropriate response to that is violence. Like that's what the Democrats are saying at the at the hearings. OK. And so like, well, you know, that presents an interesting, shall we say, rhetorical challenge. Right. Because, well, as a matter of fact, it, it might not be the appropriate thing to do because it might not work. OK. So like you mentioned, the Boston Tea Party. Well, I bet that if you went and you picked up some newspapers from that weekend, you would probably go see the newspapers report that a bunch of criminals stole some tea, right? Like what happened was these people weren't there for the news. They were there for the history and they won. Okay. And so like they got to say that, you know, this was a heroic event. And instead of going down as so many criminal acts as like a, that are not historical, worthy of historical note. And so like, I mentioned um, on a recent, I don't remember where it was, but I made some, you know, reference that like, you know, the terrorist always loses by definition because the fact that he is a, that he is deemed a terrorist means that he is not a revolutionary, which would mean that he was successful, right? So like the revolutionary is successful, the terrorist fails. And that is because like the revolution is terrorism successful. Okay. So like, you know, that that's that's a that's a reasonable observation okay but like you know i i think that we are met with sort of a circumstance in which um people talk about people get mad when democrats say things like you know like eric swalwell very famously you know said to some trump supporter or something like you know the government has nuclear weapons and you can't overthrow us with your stupid musket or whatever or something to this effect right your ar15 is it's not going to overthrow the government. And, jo you know, Joe Biden says this, you need an F-16, you know, but, you know, like, you know, don't dare these people stupid. But, like, you know, like the, fundamentally, like what they're saying is not, you know, entirely absent merit that like you are not going you are not going to be able to go out and um, and and face the government in a battlefield confrontation with your small arms. OK, and so that's, you know, sort of something that that needs to be taken into consideration, you know, when in any, in any discussion of force of arms for political change. Now, <clears throat> I, <laughs> it would be dangerous in the extreme to, for me to discuss, you know, how one would go about violently overthrowing a government. And so I'm, I'm not going to fantasize about such things 
in this in this venue. But what I will say is that, like, you know, the, you know, the, there's the there's a backstop of force at some point, and the, and the, and the force is not necessarily like the people are going to rise up and do battle with the with the with the for, with the armed forces. Fundamentally, what it is is that like the armed forces at some point decide that. You know, you end up. I don't think that there's a potential for a real revolution. At some point, it becomes a coup. In that, at some point, the military just says, "Like, okay, look, we're not going to fight these people. Okay, like, we're not going to do it. We're, we would rather remove you from office, and we'll just we'll just do the Pinochet thing, and 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 we'll figure out the democracy bit later on. Okay, like, I think that that's a more realistic prospect than you know than anything else. But of course, you know, at some point between now and the point that the military decides that they're going to depose the president or whatever, you know, it could very well be that, you know, citizens are, are getting into, you know, gunfights with, with law enforcement and, and the military. And like, that's undesirable in the extreme. It would really be preferable that we would, you know, that we would provide, prevent that outcome. But like, that is like sort of the hard physical limit that at some point they end up killing each other. And then, when when the military wants the killing to stop, they just remove the government from power and, and, and they become the government. And they say, OK, we're not going to do like the things that these guys did to piss you off anymore, but you're not going to screw with us because we're going to kill you. Like, we're going to kill you really fast. We're not going to give you any liberal nonsense about democracy. We'll kill everybody. You're going to do what we say. And sort of like that, that is the that's the that's the, you know, the iron fist that restores order. And by the time it gets to that point, the people welcome that the the people welcome that imposition right that they're basically like okay i'm sick of people rioting in the streets and so these guys saying they'll kill everybody who riots in the streets is actually like preferable to what was going on and if donald trump had done that in 2020 then you know he'd probably still be president frankly you know fraud or none you know you go out and you stop the riots people are happy about that and when you and when you let the riots continue you know they're they they rightly lose confidence in your governance and so I will invite quick last thoughts. We're we're almost to midnight, and uh, so I would like to wrap it up. But anybody has anything else? Uh, burning desires. Let's get them. Hey, you know one thing, real quick. You know, a lot of people are always talking about, oh, you know, buying guns and you know storable food and all this stuff for being prepared for like what they think kind of like imagine is like a D Day, you know, uh, Red Dawn kind of scenario. Um, you know, I don't see things happening uh, in such a fashion. But you know, one thing that I think is a real equalizer that we're seeing a lot in the Ukraine war footage right now are drones. And, uh, you know, these are things that used to be, you know, a thousand dollars for the ones that hook up to your iPad, but now there are some that are, you know, a thousand dollars that have, you know, incredible capabilities and things. And just want to put it out there that like, you know, if, if you, if you claim you want to have any sort of preparedness or any kind of scenario like this, you know, the drone is the new, is the new, uh, 21st century, uh, warfare. And I think that's something that people ought to consider. Well, you know, and drones can be a lot of fun. More importantly, so if you want to have a hobby with drones, then then that's that's what you that's what you uh, that's the reason that you would be making all those Amazon purchases, and and, uh, and that's what you tell the FBI if they show up and ask why you bought a hundred drones. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of opportunity for business. You know, you can start a drone photography business. You know, some of these drones, three four hundred bucks. You can go to every house on Zillow and be like, hey, you're selling a million dollar house. How about a uh, you know. $200 drone footage fly through of, you know, the outside and maybe the inside if you're good. Hey, going to end it there, but just, you know, something to think about. Indeed. Anybody else? All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you so much. I've had a lot of fun tonight. I hope that you have too. And of course, uh, those of you who are listening to this uh, later, I would invite you to join us for live shows. We do these every Wednesday at 930 
And uh, I'd love to have your input. Uh, I, I love that, you know, tonight we had a lot of audience participation, uh, and that is huge to me. I really enjoy it. And uh, I'd love to invite you to come join us so that we can hear from you. And if you're somebody who's not able to join the uh, the, the live uh, session because you're listening to this in some capacity that you've obtained it without paying for it, well, then, you know, you're a crook and you're stealing from me. But you can make an honest person out of yourself rather easily. It costs you precisely $6.70, as a matter of fact. You go over to uh, surrealpolitics.com slash join. And you enter code Agenda33 at checkout, and then you'll get 33% off for your first three months. And then once you've paid, once you've done the first three months, you'll be like, this is awesome. I'm going to do this forever. And then you'll start paying me 10. And then once a thousand of you do that, then, you know, then I'll get $10,000 a month and I can hire somebody and then I can like, and I can hire contractors and I can buy stuff and, and I can just keep on expanding my power until basically it's impossible for for people to challenge our dominion over the entire world. And then after that happens, we'll get decadent and lazy. And then, you know, the scrappy underdog will replace us. It's kind of the way that it works. And so I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to uh, no longer being the scrappy underdog. Looking forward to getting lazy as a consequence of our tremendous success. And uh, I look forward to doing it with all of you. You guys are great. I really appreciate you making this possible. So thank you all so much. We'll be back Friday for the Uncensored Show. Be back Monday for the Publix Real Politics. And back here Wednesday at 9.30. Every day, every uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. See you soon. Uh-huh.